Welcome to a special edition of the ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers. I'm in Newport, Rhode Island in America, which as well as hosting an ATP 250 event this past week, is also the home of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. In fact, I'm sitting on one of the most beautiful grass courts in the world, the original horseshoe court on which the first ever staging of the US Nationals, the tournament we know today as the US Open, was held in 1881. I'm leaning against the net post as I speak into the microphone here, Fortunately, no one's playing tennis, but uh, there are a few ball kids throwing some beanbags onto a board before their final duties of the week on court at the Hall of Fame Open. So I'm quite safe here, but anyone who plays the game must be tempted to pick up a racket and enjoy this beautiful surface. I know I am. In fact, if you've ever wondered what it must have been like to be part of the tennis social scene in the early days of the sport in the last 20 years or so of the 19th century, coming here to this glorious spot in the northeastern corner of the USA gives you a pretty good idea. The turreted buildings of the Newport Casino were all built in the 1880s and 90s. If I look up this timber-framed, I suppose, early stands, looking down onto this court, a couple of American flags around, uh, the windows of the Hall of Fame building. It really is a remarkable spot. There's something very Gilded Age about the whole Newport Casino. Oh, by the way, the word casino in this context has nothing to do with gambling. It was just the word used at the time for a social club. In this case, a social club with some very, very nice tennis courts. And in this special podcast, we mix the tournament that's taken place this week with its historical setting. We'll be talking to the former player Todd Martin, who's chief executive officer of the Hall of Fame, to Andy Roddick, a Hall of Famer, Andy Murray, who one day is surely going to be one, and other players involved in this week's tournament. But let's start with the 262nd inductee to the International Tennis Hall of Fame, the winner of the singles title at Wimbledon, singles and doubles at the US Open, an Australian Open runner-up, and two times Davis Cup winner. Leighton Hewitt. He received his black blazer and commemorative medal after Saturday's semi-finals and when I spoke to him it was clear he cherishes his latest accolade alongside his many other accomplishments. Yeah, it's up there with uh, the best of them. Um, you know, in terms for me to, to be alongside uh, the idols and absolute legends of the sport of tennis. Um, kids that I used to wake up as a kid in Australia, I'd wake up in the middle of the night to, to dream of playing on the courts that these guys would play on and now to be actually sitting alongside them in the Hall of Fame of, of our famous sport, um, it's pretty amazing and, and it's something that I don't think will sink in right at the moment. But certainly moving ahead and being called a Hall of Famer alongside those greats, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. As a kid who was mad on sports, I mean, did you have any conscious dreams of... Uh, did you imagine sort of hitting the shot that won Wimbledon or won the Davis Cup or won the Australian Open or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I probably more so probably winning Davis Cup. Um, there, there was one particular match, the 86 Davis Cup final at Kuyong, where Pat Cash came back and beat um, Mikael Pernfors from Sweden to, to win the Davis Cup that year. And I just watched replay after replay of that match and, and dreamt one day that I'd be able to, to come back from two sets of love down and, and win an epic match for Australia. And, you know, I remember Cashy just jumping into Neil Fraser's um, arms on the side of the court as captain. And um, it was just an amazing scene and it was something that you could enjoy more as a team than an individual in the sport of tennis and so that was something I always dreamt of and I was very fortunate to be able to play in a lot of big Davis Cup matches early on in my career. The team ethic is obviously very important for you was that why you might so easily have been an Australian rules player apart from the fact that you obviously came from a very strong family with your dad your uncle and your grandfather also playing? 
Uh, yeah, I think so. The, the team aspect, and I think that was just instilled in me. Um, to, I, I loved AFL training. I really enjoyed going out and pushing yourself with your teammates to help each other get better. Um, what does that involve, AFL training? Uh, a lot of running. <laughs> it's a very athletic sport. So, um, you know, there's obviously ball skills as well, kicking and handballing and marking. Um, but you've got to be extremely fit and do a lot of hard gut running, basically, to be able to last a game of AFL football. So I, I felt like I brought that kind of training to my tennis as well. And, and when I was part of the Davis Cup team, uh, even though I was quite young when I ended up the number one player for Australia, I felt like I tried to lead by example um, with the standards that I set on the training court for the rest of the boys um, and I felt like that pushed everyone in the team to get better um, and that was something I was proud of. How close did you come to being an Aussie Rules footballer? Did you have any agonising family conferences over which way you should go, tennis or AFL? No, my parents um, wanted me, especially my dad, wanted me to play tennis over football um, purely because he felt like tennis, I was in control of my own destiny. There wasn't a coach or a football club or a president of a club that could uh, change how well you could do in the sport uh, or what team you could potentially play for. Um, Whereas in tennis, if you were good enough, you'd make it. Um, And so I think my parents really um, liked that thinking in terms of, you know, if you did all the hard work and and you got the results that you... um, you were trying to strive for then you would end up where you belong Um, and so that was a big part tennis and golf I think in those two fashions of the two sports where you do control your own destiny Um, but yeah I think the Davis Cup meant something because I still miss that team aspect of tennis and did you feel that it was a comfortable decision for you to make I mean you were sort of abandoning the family tradition of AFL by going into tennis yeah, no, everyone was um, so supportive. If anything, they were pushing me more towards tennis than AFL football, uh, the rest of the family as well. I think the injuries as well, they were probably worried about. AFL, you can get so injured, obviously, because it's a contact sport and, and potentially you can be one major injury away from uh, not fulfilling your potential in that particular sport. So I think all in all, um, I'm very grateful that they were able to push me into tennis and drive me that way. I guess when I got to around 14 and I started winning quite a few Uh, tournaments overseas internationally for my age group that probably gave me the inner belief that I was going to be good enough or I was certainly on the path to be good enough uh, to be an international tennis player and try and make a career out of it. You talked about dreaming of winning a Davis Cup rubber from two sets to love down you did that at Melbourne Park against Roger Federer and at the end of that match you said I think absolutely stoked with adrenaline you can keep your Grand Slam titles this beats all of that Obviously, there's a bit of adrenaline involved there, but how much was actually winning for Australia almost the peak for you? Uh, you know, it was in a lot of ways the peak, and obviously um, to, to beat someone like Roger as well, who, um, yes, he'd only just started hitting the absolute top of the game at that particular stage, but he was world number one. He'd um, just come off winning Wimbledon uh, a couple of months before that as well, his first Grand Slam title, and it was a real challenge for me, obviously, to be able to stand there and with take the, the beating that I was getting from Roger for nearly three sets and be able to find something deep within myself to, to turn it around. But it was more the fact that I could celebrate with my teammates and captain uh, on the side of the court, which made it all the more special. You played in the early era of the Federer Nadal. You played Djokovic as well. What did you pick up from them? What do they do that takes tennis further that you eventually couldn't live with? 
Oh, well, they all have different strengths. Um, you know, Roger had unbelievable all-court game, and they're all different in their own way too. But, uh, you know, Roger's all-court game was... Um, uh, was incredible. He had so much variety um, compared to anybody on the tour at the time. So he was able to put his opponents in a lot of uncomfortable positions on a court where uh, would open up the point for him to be able to do what he did best. Uh, Rafa, on the other hand, hit um, with spin that no one had ever seen before. Uh, he was able to generate incredible spin, especially from the left-hand forehand, um, which was able to open up the court so many occasions and he was able to play his strengths for the majority of the match. Um, in terms of Novak, the, the moving, how balanced he is, the return of serve, um, when he's at his best, the, the depth that he hits consistently, how close to the baseline, that just builds pressure on his opponents. But yeah, they're all so strong with their mindset as well. I, I felt like I, that was one of my strengths, um, but they've certainly been able to take it to a new level. And what would the 10-year-old Leighton Hewitt have said if, if someone had said, you know, in 30 years' time you're going to end up in the International Tennis Hall of Fame? Yeah, at the time it would have been uh, hard to believe, you know, really. Um, at 10 I didn't know the full direction I wanted to go in. At that particular time I would have only just been starting out playing junior tournaments in Adelaide as well. Um, yeah, probably just started wearing my hat backwards for the first time as well on the tennis court. So um, it, it's, it is, at that stage and throughout your teens, it's very hard to picture yourself that you're going to end up with a, a Hall of Fame career uh, and be put alongside the absolute legends of the sport. I'm just trying to make a link between all the kids who are out there dreaming today and the fact that a very small percentage will actually make it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I guess just to sort of keep that dream alive, that's the biggest thing. And, and I think, yeah, it's not about focusing on getting to the Hall of Fame. You know, it's great. For me, I always had the dream. My three biggest dreams was to win a Grand Slam, touch world number one and, and win the Davis Cup once. And, um, yeah, I would have taken probably any one of those three, to be honest, when I started my career. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to tick those three off early on in my career and probably took uh, a bit of pressure off me as well. Well, I hope you and your family enjoy this weekend. Thank you very much. Cheers. So what made Leighton Hewitt so successful on court? Every tennis fan who watched him was aware of his fierce competitive spirit and you could only marvel at his speed around the court. But at a special marquee dinner on Friday night, Andy Roddick talked about something else about Hewitt, describing him as a master of trajectory. So, of course, the following morning, I had to catch up with Roddick on one of the practice courts here at the Newport Casino, and I asked him to explain what he'd picked up on that so many others had missed. So last night we were talking about it, and rightfully so, uh, a lot of the kind of anecdotal stuff about him was, you know, heart of a lion and never gave anything, and um, that's all true. And, you know, he's probably the toughest competitor that that I played against. Um, that aside, I think it, when you kind of divide him, d- define him just as a guy who hustled, made a lot of balls and, you know, was kind of intense about it all, um, actually does a disservice to, to a lot of what he did really well. Um, he was a, a master of trajectory, meaning, you know, he knew that you couldn't hurt him cross court because he was so fast. You had to go line to make him bleed a little bit. Um, but he became such an expert of, of keeping the ball low, especially on that backhand side. It was almost like a, almost like a Connors type side spin. And so, you were trying to solve this problem of which there were kind of very few good options, but also doing it from a ball trajectory that was, you know, most of the time below your hips. So you're having to attack to small parts of the court because he was able to shrink it with his speed, but also uh, 
from places that were uncomfortable, right? I couldn't even hit topspin on a backhand, so I'm supposed to all of a sudden get out of a kind of middle cross-court rally, attack him line off of a ball that's below my knee. Um, he was very good at kind of controlling the trajectory, knowing when to play it high up the line off that forehand side to get back to neutral and kind of wouldn't let you out of that pattern where he was kind of beating you low uh, and just kind of forced you to make a decision of which, uh, you know, it was normally a bad one. So what did that mean you couldn't do that you would normally do against a player like him? Well, it would make me crazy because you'd be watching early round matches and you would have commentators say like, well, you should be able to attack him. It's like, it's just not that simple. I wish it was. We would all be much better players if, if, uh, if that was the case. But it meant that you had to pick and choose your spots almost perfectly. Um, you had to be able to switch directions to open up the court. It wasn't as simple as like, okay, just pound his backhand uh, and he's going to miss or put pressure on that side. If you kept it neutral, that probably meant you were behind because he was comfortable and you probably weren't. Um, so different things, you had to chip up line, get him to hit up on you with the forehand because that's one ball that he had to elevate. If you went kind of squirrely chip up the line, he would have to run across and at least play it up. He couldn't play that flat down ball. And then hopefully you got something up around your shoulder. So he just forced you to almost play two or three shots ahead, you know, knowing that he wasn't going to probably blow you off the court with one of those two or three shots. But it was like a math problem that had multiple steps. But if he kept the ball low, does that mean you couldn't get the topspin on forehand or backhand to actually get it up high to him? Well, yes, but it also meant that if you did hit that, it wasn't off of a ball that was coming down. So it wasn't like the aggressive kind of Rafa topspin, right? It was more like a flip topspin where you're just trying to change the height, but you couldn't really like just completely you know, top out aggressively on a ball that is so low and kind of sliding through the court, especially on on a quicker hard court or a grass court, which is uh, probably where he was, he was at his best. He just made it extremely tough. And then if you did want to kind of flip it up um, and you left it short, he was still able to, I, think, I still think he's one of the most underrated volleyers of all time. You know, Rafa kind of in the same vein, people never talk about it just because he doesn't have to do it all the time. Leighton was that good at net also. And second serves? I mean, he must have kicked the second serve. He could. His ki- the kick wasn't the one that bothered me, and he could switch it up to other people. He knew that kind of if he slid that weird little kind of slider in at like 87, 88, that I didn't have the ability to really go after a turn on the backhand side. So I was just going to kind of punch it in, and then he had me where he wanted me. We were in a neutral rally. He wasn't really threatened. So he did a really good job pitching a good ball game. I wouldn't say that his second serve was was good or great by, by any means, but he used it really well. He made it. Uh, a lot better than than just kind of the RPMs and the speed of it. And did it make any difference what surface he was playing on? If it was a high bouncing court, would that actually work against him? Yeah, but he was still the fastest guy on the planet. So if it's high bouncing, you know, against most, um, you know, I don't think he's going to go out and beat Rafa on a slow high bouncing court. But if he gets someone on a fast court, he, he's going to make it make it painful for them. But obviously, you know, there's there's uh, what do they say in golf? Courses for horses, and you know, we, we certainly like the faster ones. With Leighton Hewitt's induction, there are now 262 Hall of Famers from 27 different countries. But what exactly does someone need to have achieved to be considered for the Hall of Fame? I sat down with the chief executive and former player Todd Martin in a quiet room in the Newport Casino's highly impressive tennis library, absolute dream of a place for anyone interested in the history of tennis, and put it to him that with Grand Slam men's singles titles being dominated by a select group of players for the best part of the past two decades, there will be some obvious shoe-ins and then there may be a period when there won't be any others who become eligible. From a singles perspective, that's probably right. And if we look at the superficial, there's two data points that I believe most knowledgeable tennis fans and participants look at. And that uh, those two data points are number of Grand Slams won and um, highest ranking or number of weeks at world number one or, or what have you. It's uh, certainly 
the two data points that I would look at in analysis of my own career as being the most important. It would certainly be, I think, at the higher higher level of importance to most everybody. Um, but as the sport evolves, I think we also have to consider uniqueness. I think we have to consider many more data points than simply just were you the best in those two weeks and were you the best among the competition that you had? Because sometimes the competition might be different. We can't evaluate that uh, generation to generation, maybe even year to year. Nadal's not the same player every year. So there's some years if you're ranked ahead of Nadal, that's more impressive than others. Um, I love to talk amongst friends about David Ferrer. My belief is, is, as the sport and the tours continue to evolve, we should be looking more and more deeply at more data points. David Ferrer's win-loss percentage is out of this world. David Ferrer's ranking was in the top four in the world. You know, a Grand Slam final. That's good career. And, you know, he won a number of other tournaments. Like, oh, that's great. That's a good career. If you look at the fact that Ferrer was in the top five, maybe even higher than that, for what seemed to be six years straight, um, along with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray in and out of there as well, how can you not look and say that's just an out-of-this-world level of sustained excellence and achievement I don't think the book cover tells anything about who David Ferrer was as a tennis player. So you're looking at different ways of evaluating players than just Grand Slam titles won? I would if I were a voter and not just the administrator of the process and, and, and the policies and procedures. I would be asking myself the questions of, well, wait a second. Like, all right, so who do you lose to in the finals of the French Open? Who did he beat in the finals of the big tournaments that he won? Uh, what was his win-loss record just generally? How many years was he in the top ten? How many years was he in the top five? Um, I think you get to those different data points, and then you start really looking at the whole or you know the body of work as opposed to just parts of, uh, of it. You know, the, the assessment at the end of the day m- might be, might very well be. Yeah, he's still a legend, not a Hall of Famer. But, you know, I think there's a first for everything. And at some point in time, might there not be a first person who is inducted into the Hall of Fame, who's never been world number one, who's never won a Grand Slam? And is that is that okay? I would argue that he was one of the three or four best players of the 2000s. Just my argument about data points. Uh, So Nadal, right now, as we speak, Nadal 22, Novak 21, Federer 20. Okay, let's just call them all equal. I mean, at at a certain point in time, we're we're splitting hairs when you're getting into... A lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. Um, So here we have three relatively concurrent careers with almost equal achievement. If you go back to the 90s, Pete Sampras was number one in the world for six straight years. He won 14 majors. 
the next most prolific champion of that era was Andre Agassi, and he won eight. You go back into the 60s, Laver won the Grand Slam in 62, won the Grand Slam in 69, had six years without being able to play majors, and he won, uh, I think, 12 uh, Grand Slams in total. Emerson won 13. In what span of time, at, with how many opportunities were, were, were those won? I could argue that Pete Sampras, doubling almost, the next most prolific champion of the day, you know, considering the technology, considering the courts, considering the structure of the tour, considering 16 seeds at Grand Slams as opposed to 32 seeds, you can start to consider all of that. Might it be possible to still look at Sampras in a favorable light against Nadal, uh, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. So it's different forms of analysis, is what you're saying. Yes, I mean it's there is the absolute, which my parents would be mortified that I'm looking at it at the relative level because I, I think we, my family all believes it is a world of absolutes. There's a lot of gray, but when it gets to a certain point in time, you're not judging yourself against somebody. You're judging yourself against yourself. Am I doing the very best that I can? We're looking at the absolutes, and that's 63 Grand Slam titles across three individuals. If we're looking at it, the relative, Sampras almost twice as uh, accomplished as Agassi. But then you can go around in circles, because you can say that Andy Murray, um, if he hadn't been competing with Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, he'd probably be up to 10, 12, possibly 14 Grand Slam titles as well. It's an argument, and therefore, you know, are we getting too hung up on numbers? You talk a lot about data. Maybe we should just go on the intangibles. How far did, how much cut through did they have, which you could never measure? No, and that's the question that you hinted at earlier with fame. Um, you know, and achievement brings more fame than just about anything. And um, so, it, what I'm, what I'm focused on is just one I, I i totally disregard discussion about um greatest of all time there's just no um, there's just no way to there's no way to compare i think the great champions of the game would have figured out how to be successful no matter when they were uh when they were entering into the the sport the champions come from here in my head from here in my heart and from here on my legs. And then, um, you know, the rest is left to some chance. That's the International Tennis Hall of Fame CEO, Todd Martin. And for a longer version of that conversation, which includes details about the voting process, the Hall of Fame Museum, and Martin's own career as a player, check out the ATP Podcast channel this coming Wednesday. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Well, it's not all been about the Hall of Fame in Newport, as the venue still plays host to the last remaining grass court tournament on the tour in North America. And all week, some of the best players in men's tennis have been battling it out in the ATP 250 event that brings to an end the men's six-week grass court season. Among them was the former world number one Andy Murray, who lost to Alexander Bublik in the quarterfinals. And as he told me afterwards... He had mixed feelings about the result. You know, I felt like I had a good chance of progressing here. Um, you know, if I got through Bublik, you know, there would have been a good opportunity potentially in the semi-finals. Um, 
but yeah, to have my body feeling pretty good and getting lots of matches in is, is important for me. In the broad scheme of things, what have you got out of this week here in Newport? Uh, well, not what I was hoping for. Uh, you know, I wanted to try and accumulate some more points to move myself up the rankings and get closer to seeding at the US Open. And, you know, making the quarterfinals doesn't really move me that much further up the rankings. You know, semifinals onwards would, would have done that. Um, so, yeah, didn't get what I wanted. You're back here for the first time in 16 years. You've said that the courts are that much improved. Do you think there's actually a case for an extra couple of weeks of grass court tennis in the Pro Tour? There should be, yeah. Um, you know, um, obviously I prefer, you know, I, I like playing grass court tennis, so, you know, some of the other players who maybe don't might say otherwise, but, you know, I think the, the build-up to the grass season is too short. Um, you know, I, I think there should be a, a Masters series on a grass court. I think that would be fair, and it's how all of the other majors... Um, actually, well, I guess it doesn't happen in, in Australia, but... My feeling is that the biggest tournaments should have, you know, a, pr- a proper lead-up, proper build-up to them, and um, yeah, I, I definitely believe there should should be a Masters series at least on on grass. So, if that's only one more week, so so be it. But I think it should be there. Well, with Newport's recently relayed courts playing very well all week, the quality of the grass oughtn't to be an obstacle to more tournaments on tennis's original surface. One man who'd certainly vote for more time on grass is Andy Murray's conqueror, Alexander Bublik, who managed to marry his love of the surface with a brief history lesson and a run to the final in Newport. I think it's great. I mean, if it's a place of Hall of Fame of tennis, I think it's great. And uh, it's nice to see all these old, ancient trophies, you know, out there. When you go to the physios and the center court, I think it's a lot of history here. But you've sometimes said that you struggle to enjoy tennis. Do you actually get inspired by some of the history here? Not at all, but I, I'll be honest with you. I'm enjoying myself a lot more and I'm enjoying playing tennis a lot more in the past couple of months, to be honest. It's uh, it's really becoming less about... Uh, actually, I would say, yeah, it's less about uh, money and it's more about enjoying the game and I uh, really... Honestly, saying that I do enjoy and I own, and I play now for for the for the matches for the results and it's been for a couple of months right now so I'm pretty happy with uh, how I how I approach the game now and uh, the way that I'm enjoying it much much more than I used to be in the past so I'm very happy with that and it's nothing to do with the results because the results were horrible since I won Montpellier the results were horrible I was not passing the first rounds I was, ne- I was never winning two consecutive matches until the Eastbourne probably yeah until Eastbourne so this the season was a disaster in a way but uh, I, st- I was still enjoying even the latest stages of clay court I was really enjoying the time and uh, thanks to my team about that because it's, uh, it's a long journey and I'm happy to say that I do enjoy what I do now Is there something that's made the difference? My family my, my team, my family, because my, my coach is my best friend. Well, he used to be my best friend, now he's my coach, and he's still my best friend. My wife, I'm, I'm having a son approaching in a couple of weeks from now, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. Uh, I do enjoy my tennis more because I started taking, you know, more seriously my private life, so tennis became number two, a big-time number two, not even, maybe even number three in my list, so that's why I do enjoy it a lot more. And any goals for the rest of the season, apart from becoming a dad? No. I mean, literally, for me, it's about enjoying the game, and if I enjoy, I can make some results. And I'm happy regardless if I make them or not. So that's the, for me, the most important thing is to be regardless happy, even if you if you win or lose. For me, it's the same thing.
Well, he went on to lose to the American Maxim Cressy in the final. Cressy, who's also capped off a great six weeks on grass. But that's not the final word from here in Newport. For that, we'll end as we started by talking to another Australian and one whose story is pretty remarkable. Jason Kubler reached the semi-finals here, following on from a fourth round at Wimbledon, and that all comes off the back of years of injury, which included six knee operations. So I asked him if he's happy just to be playing again. I've been on a, a little good run the, uh, lately. Um, you know, Before Wimbledon, I was able to play two American uh, challenges, and I won and then made final of the next one. So um, if anything, I've been sort of reassured that the work I'm putting in, um, you know, the last couple of months is really starting to pay off. To what extent is it a question of something having clicked? Did something click at some stage, or is it just a result of persistent hard work? Yeah, I, I think um, you know probably getting good good guidance. Um, I've started uh, working with Stephen Huss. You know, he's based out of um, out of Atlanta. Uh, probably the last three, three and a half, four months. Um, and then yeah, I think probably the persistence and probably just yeah, I'm getting good guidance with uh, the mental side of things, and um, I really think you know the way I've been going then I think it's only gonna you know go up from here okay so let's take two matches that you played this week you beat James Duckworth in two very very tight sets and then you go and lose your semi-final to Alexander Bublik in straight sets what do you learn from those two matches well with with Ducks you know we grew up together so um you know we sort of knew how each other play we sort of uh to an extent knew what the other person maybe didn't like as much so um and then also, I don't think I'd beaten Ducks in a professional tournament before that. We played, you know, a handful of times. So, um, if anything from that match, you know, it just it sort of gives me confidence with the way uh, I've been going about things the last couple of months. Um, keeps making me want to follow what I've been doing. Keep making me wanting uh, wanting to improve. And then, yeah, with the match today, obviously, you know, I would have loved for it to have been closer, or you know, obviously me to have won. But uh, I think in matches like that, it, it just gives you. Uh, you know, a very good idea of the things you need to work on and the things that, you know, maybe you thought were good, but then in certain situations, you know, you still need to work on it. So, you know, definitely, I, I think, I think when you play the better players, you need to, um, you know, have an understanding that, uh, you know, they're great players for a reason. You know, they have great weapons. You know, Alex, you know, probably has one of the the better serves on tour, and um, you know, I'm only just getting exposed to those sort of things. You know, I played predominantly on the on the Challenger tour, so. You know, the only times I've really seen Alex has been on TV. So I think it's cool to get those experiences against those top guys. You know, I've played, um, you know, a handful of, of top guys that I've seen on TV a lot. And I feel like I'm constantly, you know, getting uh, more comfortable and slowly improving. Um, you know, maybe another thing is just sort of, you know, just, just keep working on my strengths. You know, like obviously everyone's going to be a very good player from, from here on out. But I think if I can keep improving on the things that I do well, um, that's only going to help me. Do you ever think back to the lowest point when you had all those knee operations and say this is a tremendous achievement and, and actually use it as a relative way of looking at where you are now? I don't, I don't think so. Just because uh, I think not, you know, there's obviously been people that have had worse injuries than me and there's people that, you know, haven't been able to continue playing. Um, but for me, I feel when you do have a... Uh, a situation thrown at you that is not great in my opinion you can either you know hold on to it and then sort of feel sour about it or or try and move on and then sort of you know not 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 be happy it happened but like just not have that sour feeling and hold on to it you know so 
you know, I don't, I don't, I don't look back. Well, right now, anyways, I don't look back and go, you know, I was, I was there at one stage. If anything, it's right now. I'm in a good space where I'm constantly trying to, you know, improve my, my mental side, improve my tennis, improve my, my, my fitness levels, um, try and get more comfortable at these bigger tournaments. What was the lowest point, and how did you get through it? The lowest point is funny. The lowest point wasn't. Well, it's not funny, but the lowest point wasn't actually the knees. It was. Uh, so after after the knees, I had a uh, I had a wrist injury that took me out for six months, and then I sort of came back, started playing all right. Well, this was during the COVID year, and um, I had to get elbow surgery. So that was those two injuries were probably the lowest, just purely because you know I sort of gotten back, thought I was playing pretty well, and then you know a six month injury happens, and it just always felt like. Um, I was constantly on the comeback. Um, so hopefully now, you know, just uh, a few weeks ago, I was able to do 12 months on the on the tour, which, you know, I've only probably done two or three times my whole career. So uh, hopefully I can stay injury-free. You know, I've got... I'm, I'm, I'm organising a team around me now. Um, so hopefully that, keep, you know, gives me more weeks on tour. But obviously injury is a part of a tennis player's life. You'll get another few. How have you develop the ability not to let it set you back i guess it's a, a case by case thing you know obviously everyone's going to get niggles and you know you hope that the niggles only last you know a week two weeks three weeks um but yeah, like i said just before you know now now that i'm starting to get a team around me hopefully the the injuries are the, the smaller ones so then you can still you know think about the future still think about the things you need to work on uh and then obviously obviously if i you know get another serious injury then you've got a you know, you got to handle the situation when it comes. You know, like um, I don't know how I'll feel when I get another if I, if I get another serious injury. But um, you know, right now I'm trying to do everything I can to uh, to sort of stay away from that one. When the new ranking list comes out, you're going to be definitely in the top 104, probably in the top 100. The top 104 significant because Monday is the cutoff date for the U.S. Open entry. Oh, so you'll get into the U.S. Open as of right. How does that feel? No, it feels it feels very good. I was um. I wouldn't say worried, but uh, I was definitely thinking about it. Um, I wasn't thinking about it too much uh, at Wimbledon while I was in qualies, but then obviously as each match, you know, as I won each match, then when I was getting interviewed, they were saying, you know, if you if the points would have counted, you know, maybe blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I had a fourth round, so obviously it would have set me up pretty well for even next year. But uh, so, you know, I had to sort of take that out of my mind. And then I after I played Tomo, I, then they told me I played Felix. It's like, man, if I... It's a tough task to, to beat Felix, and I think that was the match that got me into the into that cut. So, you know, it, it's definitely been on my mind because I don't think I had done it before. Um, but yeah, so if anything, it's just sort of gives myself another reason, you know, for right now, just to give myself a little pat on the back, and then um, just to remember that the work I've been doing the last few months is really paying off. And so, having got into the top hundred. Are there more goals now, or having taken the winning and losing a little bit out of it, is it just a question of play every match and just see what happens? A, a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, like I said before, I, I would really like to win. You know, and I'm a competitive person. But you know, when I when I look back on my career, I want to I want to be happy with the mental growth. Um, I want to be happy with that. So I want to be happy with uh, you know the opportunities I gave myself. Um, regardless if I if I win or lose, you know, like, you know, even even as the, the time goes on now, you know, I'm happy that I got that experience against Alex today. Um, just like at Wimbledon, I was very happy I had that experience against um, Fritz. So, uh, 
you know, I think it's just that constant, just mental growth, constant uh, growth as a person, and then, um, yeah, just sort of see what happens. We're recording this at Newport, Rhode Island. You've got Leighton Hewitt's induction. That sort of rather emphasises the great Aussie tradition that you're looking to follow in, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the last probably uh, six months I've really began like a strong relationship with Leighton so it's actually a pretty cool uh pretty cool thing that this is happening here and then you know he was joking around at, at Wimbledon he's like all you need to do is just make it to the weekend and then I'll be able to see this so then you know at the time I wasn't I wasn't sure but it's kind of like also another cool thing that you know I can be here um for such a special occasion as well like you know I don't know if I'm if it's going to happen again while I'm playing that I'll be here while another Australian is getting inducted into the Hall of Fame so uh you know, especially now that we've gotten a bit closer and, uh, yeah, it just sort of, it's a nice little cherry on top for the week. Jason Kubler speaking to me, and no, we weren't at a pop concert. It was just as they prepared for Leighton Hewitt's induction ceremony. That's it then from Newport and the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I hope you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour around one of the most historic venues in tennis. If you are ever in this part of the world and can visit, it really is worth it. Next week, one week later than advertised, we'll bring you another podcast special as I was lucky enough to sit down with one of the game's great entertainers, Mansur Bahrami, to talk tennis tricks and politics. It's a great listen, so be sure to tune in for that. For now, though, I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis. Tennis.